Wait by approach. Love shops open. <laughs> Let's all help Joe count. As we understand him. Oh. <laughs> See, that hair is waning down. Now, he made fun of my head, didn't he? So it's free territory, isn't it? See, I'm 52. He's 58. Which one looks closest to their age? <laughs> Lot of love here. I love that. Uh, I want to thank the committee. Uh, God, there's been so many people that have contacted me, looked for me. Uh, I've moved around quite a bit the past year and a half, and uh, uh, Larry and Dave and Jim and Gary and a number of other people. I've talked to them all over the course of the past few months, and and you have shown me that oh, you're here. I'll tell you that. There's a lot. You know, I heard some scuttlebutt that oh, we got another California speaker tonight. <laughs> I'm from Illinois. <laughs> got sober in Illinois. Does that help? <laughs> How's that working for me so far? May as well alienate myself from some of you. <laughs> I love AA. I hope that uh, if anything of my experience uh, falls upon you tonight, I hope you can take that with you and, and uh, find some newcomers and just pass it on. Uh, the only thing of real value that I really believe that I have to share uh, is how much I love AA. Because I'm a human being that was told that I did not have the capacity to love another human being. I was told that by a panel of psychiatrists when I was 18, shortly after I drank a bottle of tequila and tried to kill my family. I'm not proud of that, you know, unfortunate circumstance. <laughs> Never drank no more tequila. I don't like that stuff. Um, I want to thank the committee for their hospitality. Uh, we were taken out to a great dinner tonight. Uh, I want to thank my friend Linda for coming and driving me up here from Colorado Springs. Now, see, when Gary called me, he told me that because my plane ticket got all screwed up for some reason, and I'm flying into Colorado Springs instead of Gunston. And he said, well, Otto's flying into Colorado Springs. You can ride in with him. Okay, let's see. Linda Otto. Linda <laughs> What do you think? I'm not alcoholic. I'm not stupid. So I came in here last night, and I'm walking in, and I had a different jacket on last night. Otto says to me, what is it about you big guys that you got to wear them jackets that make your shoulders look so broad? And I said, well, I don't know. Seems like the only people that ask me that question are short people with little shoulders. <laughs> Only in AA. And I'm glad I was able to be here to hear my friend Polly speak last night. Her and I have 
a lot of things in common uh, in AA, and I'm glad I know that. Uh, I'm not one of your high-achieving, sober people. i got to tell you something. On a panel of high achievers in sobriety, I'm a over-underachiever. <laughs> but I'm okay with that. We had dinner in this house last night. Up there. I had that place cased. <laughs> in the first two minutes I was in there. And I'm sober 24 years. I just didn't do it. <laughs> you hear me? Thank you for that gift basket you left in my room, by the way. And I want to tell you, it was a touch of class to put that phone card in there. I mean that sincerely. That's a touch of class. And I hope that other committees and conventions catch on to that and keep adding those phone cards in because uh, uh, it's a nice touch. It's for us to travel a lot and make a lot of phone calls home. That seems like a little bit to some people, but for us it's a it's a real nice note of we're thinking about you. So that, that kind of helps me feel good about myself and about you, too. Because most people, when they find out I've got false teeth, they put peanut brittle in my mouth. <laughs> Joe brought me trail mix. <laughs> I love to drink. Well, if you're newer in this room or you, or you need to be renewed, i got to tell you, I love to drink. And you may go places where you hear that Beer drinkers can't become alcoholic. I really believe that. And that's all I drank was beer. Budweiser, to be more specific. I know this is Coors Land. I'm sorry for you. If you'd have drank Budweiser, you'd have got here sooner. I love everything about Budweiser. I even like the label. Red, white, and blue. I mean, I could put the label on my head and feel a rush. <laughs> I love the feel of that long brown bottle. You know what? I could just put my hand on a bottle before ever taking a drink and sense relief. You hear me? I can get my hand on the door of Larry's Oasis and feel a sense of relief just going in the bar. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people who say, well, what? What's with the door now? I'm done talking to them. Because it ain't going nowhere but downhill from that. Because I'm going to explain it in detail. And when they give me that look like, boy, you're stupid. I'm... I'll tell you how much I miss Budweiser. When, when I see the Clydesdales in a parade, I weep. Sometimes I miss it bad. If you ever come out to my hometown out in California... As Polly does, we, we travel a lot locally to talk. And, and whenever I go over the, the 101, you know, go over the 405 past 101, as you go right, if you're ever in the neighborhood and you're having a little slippy-poo, this is good information. <laughs> Don't judge me yet. I'm just getting started. <laughs> just as you get to the Roscoe Boulevard exit, on the west side of the freeway is the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. I swear before God. When I drive by there, I slow down and have a moment of silence. <laughs> I understand how Louis the Lizard feels. <laughs> Don't you? 
Remember that commercial where he talked about his chiseled features? <laughs> I like a little fine wine, too. Ripple. <laughs> Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. You know why I like Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill? Because when I puke, it looks like I'm bleeding internally. <laughs> and then some mope in the bar that doesn't know me asks me what's wrong, and I tell them I'm dying from terminal something. And they buy me a bud. <laughs> I also like little Mad Dog 2020. Now, when you take that mixture and blend it together in a quart bottle of bud, and you do it long enough, it'll give you a condition known in Alcoholics Anonymous as alcoholic terminal diarrhea. <laughs> I had diarrhea for six solid years. That was really solid about those six years. <laughs> I'd go to meetings, they'd give me my own table. When you've had diarrhea for six years and you're going to meetings, you've got to develop good decision-making skills. <laughs> and you got to have split-second timing. <laughs> and I'm a puker, too. <laughs> Forgive me. I'm, I'm a projectile puker. I've got false teeth. <laughs> I can not be at home. And the one room my ex-wife would never come. We could be having the worst knockdown, drag-out fight you ever saw, but it ended when I made it to the bathroom. <laughs> she wouldn't follow me in there for nothing. I could be on the floor in a full cardiac arrest, and she would say, you're going to die. <laughs> because I had a habit of going in there and, and doing my thing. I'd be bound before the ivory altar and... Everything would be cut loose at the same time, if you know what I mean. And all of a sudden, I'd be hugging that bowl, and, and all of a sudden, my teeth would fly right out of my mouth, right into the bowl. And I would have a moment of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And then it would occur to me that they're going to go down a shooter if I don't get it. I'd go off them. And I catch them right before they get down to the shooter, and I think to myself, what the hell? I rinse them off and put them right back in. <laughs> I sure miss drinking. alcoholic or not, you are so screwed. <laughs> Laughter's identification, which means you fit. Welcome my board. I love that hate because this is the only place where I can come in here and tell you that little bit about myself and you laugh with me. Now, while you were laughing at me because I wasn't laughing. 
I would share that same stuff. And I wasn't laughing. And I would ask my sponsor, why are they laughing at me? He says, because it's funny. <laughs> he says, you'll know you're on your road to recovery when you start laughing with them. Hey, it's a wonderful place for people like me and you. I am, I am so fortunate, as in my opinion are you, if you're alcoholic of my type, because there's never been a place like this for me. I didn't even know I was alcoholic. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I've spent my entire life focused on one thing and one thing only. What's wrong with me? I see, you know, the big book is a, is a wonderful tool of information for me and direction on how to apply principles to my life to recover from a condition that there's no x-ray for. That it can only be diagnosed by myself. Lots of people call me alcoholic, but then they follow up with, you'd be okay if you quit drinking. You know what, that's not true for me. I got in very little trouble while I was drinking. It was people bothering me in between drinks. <laughs> I'm real friendly when I'm drinking my Budweiser. Just don't interfere. I'm not a tough guy. I've seen some guys here this weekend. They are tough guys, I can tell. I'm not a tough guy. I'm just sensitive. <laughs> I am so sensitive, the wind hurts my feelings. <laughs> but you pour a little Budweiser on them. The calm of the storm. It's an interesting thing about my being alcoholic. Some people, from my experience, seem to drink their way over this invisible line into a thing called alcoholic drinking. And then there's some of us who appear to be born this way. I appear to have been born with what the book talks about, a broken spirit, a soul sickness, if you will. And I wondered, I wondered what that meant, because I had a sponsor who required that I read the dictionary. Because he believed words meant something. You know what the soul, soul is defined as in the Oxford Dictionary, 1936? It says the seed of man's, and I would assume woman's, thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and actions. And I have never perceived the world the way it truly is. Polly alluded to that last night. I've had this distorted perception of reality, in my opinion, since I came out of the chute. Now, unlike Polly, I come from an interesting family. <laughs> One that did not make me alcoholic, but it put a definite spin on my personality. <laughs> There's an alcoholic home to be sure. I'm not going to tell you much about that home, though, because I'm here in Alcoholics Anonymous to talk about myself. Victims don't stay sober. So I am going to sidestep a lot of things I can share with you because I will buy into it. And there's no recovery for me if I do that. Suffice it to say, if you want an indication of what it was like on an average night in the Butler household, just watch Jerry Springer. <laughs> I just keep hoping I don't show up there. like a Butler family reunion. <laughs> Somewhere around the age of eight or nine, I'm looking in my mirror at home. And I remember saying to myself, Butler is too bad, pal. It's going to be a long life. And it's going to be lonely. 
because you are a butt ugly pal. Oh, no, don't take that personal. I was looking right through you, or past you. <laughs> now, my mama, Mama Butler never sat me down and said, Oh, oh, you poor little son of a... Oh, my God. You are so ugly. Just out of mercy alone, I'd put you back in my car. <laughs> that's not what she said. But that's what I heard. When she said, Wayne, I love you. Isn't that interesting? And I'm here to report to you, I have had hundreds of people in my lifetime say, Wayne, I love you, and I never believed a single solitary one of them, no matter how they said it, how many times they said it, or in what way they said it. Nobody did that to me. That's called a broken spirit. Now, though I believe I was born with a broken spirit, life did compound the fracture. You hear me? I took it a step further because I perceive differently. Clancy talks about disease of perception. I don't see the world the way it really is. I, I will tell you I see something. You will look me straight in the eye and say, well, no, that's not true. And I will, I will fight you for that right to see what I believe. And I've always perceived myself as being less than everybody around me. You know, in AA, we get two types of people, basically, super overachievers. Number one, men and women, don't we? we got to be number one at everything we do just to feel average, don't we? Or, the other half, we become super over-underachievers. <laughs> I can fail at anything without even trying. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me. I just realize it's my lot in life. Based upon that thought, I'm in school. I'm a recluse. I don't talk to anybody. Do you remember in your yearbook how they put a little few-word caption under your picture to best describe your personality in school? You know what mine said? Silent butler. <laughs> My senior picture, silent butler. In eighth grade, I'm all by myself. <laughs> Out on the playground. And I'm watching these kids play. And for the first time in eight years of school, I was compelled and drawn to them. They were playing kickball. And I got, I got, I started playing kickball with them. And I just felt this energy like I fit, though I couldn't use those words. I found out later it was a retarded class. But, hmm, I must be retarded. Do you know I started acting retarded? Do you know what they'll do if you act retarded? They'll diagnose you. I got diagnosed retarded in eighth grade. In ninth grade, I got put in retarded class. I stayed there until I graduated high school. Hell, I improved. I found out retarded boys go to the girls' bathroom and not get detention. Now, by the way, this is not problems other than alcoholism. This is problems associated with alcoholism. Some people will try to tell you this is problems other than, 
and then want to give me a pill. As I share with you my experience, this is problems associated with alcoholism. And I know that because when I took my first drink, it alleviated all these symptoms I'm telling you right now. I was in that retired class till my senior year. My first hero was a guy by the name of Tom. He used to take us retarded kids on field trips. He'd pick us up at the group home we lived in, which was better than living in that alcoholic home. And he would take us places. I was his favorite. He said I was the brightest of the lot. <laughs> I was their leader. I have leadership skills. I took them retarded kids places they never should have went. <laughs> we should have a lot of fun. Now in my senior grade, my senior year, Tom took me to the senior dance. Now I'm never going to drink whiskey because that's what I think alcohol is because I see what my dad drinks and what happens, so I'm not drinking that stuff. But I didn't know about beer. I don't even know what an alcoholic is. I think I do. I saw one on TV. He was laying in a doorway in an alleyway somewhere on Clark and Randolph Street in Chicago, Illinois. He was laying there. You could see the soles of his shoes were exposed, had holes in them. You could see the mismatched socks. He was wearing a tattered, torn raincoat with a rope tied about the waist. And he was laying there drinking something out of a brown paper bag. That's an alcoholic. You hear me? Now I'm here to report to you. I've been psychiatrically institutionalized 17 times. I've been arrested twice for attempted murder and nine times for domestic violence. I've slept in abandoned houses. I've slept in dumpsters. I've slept under bridges. But I've never drank nothing out of a brown paper bag. <laughs> Therefore, not a vote. You hear me? So Tom takes you to this dance. I've never been to a dance. I go to that dance. I'm six foot three. I weigh 120 pounds, soaking wet. The biggest thing on my body is an infected pickle. I don't want to talk to nobody. Tom tricks me into going. I stand up against the wall watching everybody dance and mingle, and I don't want to be I'm scared. I'm afraid that if I take a step forward, I'll trip over my gunboat feet, you'll laugh, and I'll have to find your family. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not a tough guy. I'm just sensitive. And Tom come walking over me, and he brought me a brown, long brown bottle with a red, white, and blue label called Budweiser. He said, here, drink this. It'll make you feel better. And because Tom asked me, I would have drank battery acid if Tom would have asked me. Tom is my hero. I drank it, and I said, Tom, that tastes terrible. I want a Pepsi-Cola. Tom says, that's okay, kid. You'll get used to it. Now, I'm here to tell you, Tom, to this very day, has only been drunk once in his life. The first time he drank. He, what he did was he got drunk, dizzy, uncoordinated, got a little bit out of focus, and peed in his dresser. <laughs> Almost went crazy because he couldn't flush it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But then he normalized. And he says, I'm never doing that again. And to this day, Tom has never been drunk but that one time. And that's what he meant when I would get used to it. But you see, Dr. Silkworth, the doctor's opinion, tells me what's going to happen to me. And it's exactly what happened to me. Silkworth says that abnormal drinkers like me drink essentially because I like the effect produced by alcohol. And while it is injurious, while it is injurious, 
Do you know I will continue to drink it no matter what? Because it done something for me that no human being, no other power I've ever come into could do for me. The 12-12 uses a big word called an extemporaneous effect took place. Somewhere between four and five Budweiser's, I got so good looking I couldn't stand it. <laughs> Not average. I went from 6'3", 120 pounds to 6'3", 240 pounds. I felt bulletproof. I looked out on the dance floor and eyeballed me a blue-eyed blonde dancing with some loser. <laughs> Walked right up to her and asked her to dance, and she said yes. I had never danced. I had no idea what to do, but we did it. You found out later that night sex meant two people. <laughs> it's okay to laugh. We know you did it too. <laughs> I didn't know that. They didn't give us that information in the retarded class. They didn't want us procreating. She <laughs> ruined my sex life. See, I've been having sex since I was 13. I thought I was good at it. <laughs> she complicated the entire deal. <laughs> and I really wasn't interested in doing it again. And then I had what I now know as a blackout. Couldn't remember what exactly happened. And Tom told me the next day I had a great time. I went back to retarded class. And well, I'm about to graduate to retarded class now. And my dad calls me in a few weeks later and he says, Pal, we got a problem. I said, what's that? He says, you know that girl who's with that party? I said, yes, sir. He said, you know she's 16? I'm thinking, what do I know? I'm retarded. Okay. I'm 17. She's 16. And I said, what's that mean? And my dad says, well, she's pregnant. I said, what's that mean? Now, see, in the state of Illinois, there's a law that has now been changed that if a boy, 14-year-old, somehow the state of Illinois thought a boy 14 had sense. A boy 14 or older had sex with a girl 17 or younger, whether she wanted to or not, was statutory rape. And I said to my dad, what's that mean? He says, 20 years to life. I said, even if you're retarded? <laughs> so I found out if you marry him, you don't go to jail, so I fell in love. <laughs> we went to Palmyra, Missouri, where you can marry your 10-year-old cousin if you've got enough money. No offense. You got a picture of this. We're on our way back from Palmyra, Missouri. My mom and dad are in the front seat, bewildered. I'm in the back seat with my new wife, Bonnie. She's 16 and a junior. I'm 17 and about to graduate to retirement class. It occurs to me I'm married. I'm about to graduate from retirement class. I'm going to be a father, and I've drank one time. Can't wait for the next one. <laughs> and from the time I took that drink to the time I took my last drink, is my opinion based on my experience in the history of the book Alcoholics Anonymous is that I was chasing that illusion from that day on, that effect produced. You don't know it consciously, folks, and I think that's a cunning, baffling, and powerful aspect of alcohol, is that for an alcoholic of my type, when alcohol produces that effect in my mind, it's unconscious and subconscious, and that's what's going to trigger me to drink every time I feel like I don't fit in, I don't belong, and I'm not a part of it. 
And if I don't find a solution sufficient to be more powerful than the effect produced by alcohol, I am condemned and committed to return to drinking whether I want to or not. You hear me? And I found that sufficient substitute and vastly more than that in a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. I think that's in our book. Though I didn't believe that at first. And until I took my last drink, which was November 8, 1977, I did not know I was pursuing that. I did not know I was chasing that effect. I did not know that when those feelings would overwhelm me, my first reaction would be, give me a bud. That would be my first reaction. It wouldn't be a conscious, let's see, I go up to Larry's oasis, Larry, give me 4.5 buds, I want to feel better. No, it was unconscious. And I'm going to suggest to you, if I ever drink again, it's going to be because I've stopped doing the actions I've been doing that give me that sufficient substitute. And I will drink again someday. Because alcoholism never goes away. And when I start feeling like I used to feel, the only antidote that I know, unconsciously, is that powerful effect produced by alcohol. And so I need you guys. No matter how long sober I am. Matter of fact, as Polly said, the longer I'm sober, if I may steal a line from you, I have so much more to lose. But in an instant, that can be gone. In an instant. All I've got to do is stop taking the actions that I've been taking. And I'm not saying that for your benefit. I'm saying that for mine. Because after you've done this for a while, done sobriety, it gets old after a while. It can even get boring. <laughs> because you can start realizing what a legend you've become. <laughs> I've been in meetings where they got Bill and Bob's picture on the wall, and I can see mine floating up between them. <laughs> That's what I hope you got a sponsor. So I'm sleeping in this dumpster behind Larry's Oasis. I know I, know I don't look like a dumpster diver. Not proud of it, but that's where I come from. If you would have saw me then, let me take you back. I weighed 146 pounds. I had long hair down in my butt. It was matted with stuff from the dumpster. I don't know where my false teeth went. I didn't have any teeth. I stood up a lot when I should have shut up. I had a full beard and mustache trying to hide the fact they didn't have any teeth because I was so ashamed and so embarrassed. And I remember I was home in my dumpster one night. <laughs> I had a duplex. <laughs> there was two of them out behind Larry's waist. And I heard a knock on my dumpster door. <laughs> I knew it wasn't the dumpster pickup, man. When you live in a dumpster, you got to know when they're coming. Oh, well, who's that? <laughs> I had the door. So I opened the door. And there's my daddy looking down at me. I had no idea my father had gotten sober and was paying a 12-step call on his son. I didn't know that. But he looked down there at me in that dumpster and he says, Wayne, and I'm looking at him from my surroundings. I didn't invite him in if I had room. He says, Wayne, do you want to come home? And I said, no thanks, Dad. I'm doing fine. <laughs> and he did the most gracious, loving thing he could do. He said, okay, close the lid. Didn't need Alan though. He wouldn't try to talk me out of there for nothing. If he would have, I'd have went probably. And he would have delayed the outcome. Fortunately for me, see, I don't believe I'm an alcoholic. I've just got problems. I've had a lot of people tell me I'm a psychiatric case. I mean, I went from that first drunk to my second one when I tried to take the life of my mom and dad under the influence of tequila to Vietnam in 1968 
Came back in 1970, had a different spin put on my personality. And I had a wife at home, and for fear of what I might do at home, I went to the streets. And every once in a while, my wife would talk me to coming home, and then my life with her would become so untenable, she would ask me to leave, and I would always go back to Larry's Oasis. And ultimately, Larry would kick me out, and I would go to the dumpster. And that's how I lived, until I met you guys. It's an interesting thing. I climbed out of that dumpster that night because I just couldn't hang. It was too cold of spirit, if you know what I mean. And I began that walk of walks that every man and woman in this room, if you're alcoholic of my type, has made. It doesn't have to be from a dumpster. Bottom is relevant. It could be from face down in a three-inch carpet. It could be from the front seat of the car you parked on the front porch the night before. <laughs> it could be from a jail cell, or it could be just from that rocking chair where you're drinking a little bit of whiskey, crying yourself to sleep. That's where the walk starts. And I began that walk and ended up in a place called Harvey's Restaurant. As I'm walking by about midnight, I look inside and there's this, must have been an 80-year-old woman tending the coffee bar. I sized her up immediately, knew I could get something out of her, and went in and started telling this Al-Anon. <laughs> They're everywhere. She didn't find it necessary to clue me in. So I told her about the terrible alcoholic home I grew up in and all the devastating things done to me as a kid. I had her in tears. Then I told her about Vietnam. I told her about all the stuff the kids did to me in school. I told her about how I'm living in a dumpster. She gave me a hot cup of water, some Heinz tomato ketchup, and some saltine crackers and said, knock yourself out. <laughs> and then she cut me a deal. She told me if I would mop and wax a dining room floor, she'd give me two saucy sandwiches on whole wheat toast. Because I was desperate, because I was cold, because I was hungry, I said yes. Now, here's how alcoholic I am. Halfway through that floor, I'm mopping that floor, and I'm thinking to myself, they got you again, Butler. You're getting screwed. <laughs> two lousy sandwiches. <laughs> Is there anybody that won't take advantage of you? <laughs> Doesn't that just get you? <laughs> and then she let me sleep in the car parked out behind the restaurant. A few nights later, the owner comes in, her husband, Harvey, little guy about this big. If sin was ugly, whew. Harvey had this giant nose. You ever seen a whiskey nose? I bet you have in Colorado. No offense. <laughs> they got this long signage here, passage. And then the, the ends of the nose come out like golf balls. And they got red and purple and black veins running through their face and along the nose. And I swear to God, when his nose beat, his, when his heart beat, his nose thumped. <laughs> now here I am living in that abandoned car and I'm feeling sorry for Harvey. And Harvey owns a restaurant. Harvey comes in and says, I heard about you. But I'm not liking him just yet. He says, I heard you need some help. I was in love. Those are the songs. That's the song I danced to. I heard you need some help. And I said, yes, I do. Now, what Harvey did was he pulled this brass coin out of his pocket. And on one side, it had these two A's. And on his other side, it had this prayer, God, grant me something. You know how you are. Didn't say nothing about money, food, or shelter, so I wasn't interested. And then he said, I heard you need some help. Now, what he did say was, if you'll take this coin tomorrow about noontime down to 410 16th Street, Moline, 
There's going to be some friends of mine there. They're going to be expecting you. You tell them Harvey sent you, and they'll give you some help. He didn't say a thing about AA. <laughs> he tricked me. I would have never went if I didn't think I was getting a handout. Because, see, he knows what I heard. What I heard was, we'll give you some pocket notes because we know you're broke. We'll give you some food to eat because we know you're hungry. And three or four packs of Pell-Mell tailor-made cigarettes. And I hadn't had a tailor-made for quite some time. I'm a curb butt smoker. <laughs> Let me tell you, some of you smokers are damn well selfish. <laughs> you don't leave nothing for it. <laughs> the only reason I went there the next day was because of my perception. I thought I was going to get a handout. These old-timers will lie to you. Then they justify it by saying spiritual trickery. <laughs> I've gotten pretty good at it. I get there that next day about noontime in the condition I was in. And Harvey told me that as I looked down into the cellar way, there'd be a light bulb hanging on a cord. He said if that light was on, go in. They're expecting you. So I get there. I find the address. And I find the cellar door, and right above it is the sign posted by the city of Moline, which read, Building Condemned, Do Not Enter. What do you do? Right beneath it was another sign, said AA, whatever that meant, 16th Street, Welcome, with an arrow point right into the cellar. That didn't make sense to me. And then I looked for that light bulb. Harvey said if it was on, go in. They're expecting you. And I found it. The light bulb wasn't on. It was flickering. <laughs> You know what I mean? Harvey didn't tell me what to do if it was flickering. He said it was on. Now, maybe you don't think like that. I don't know. But I couldn't make a decision. Do I go in or don't I? It's like alcoholic neurobics. I couldn't take it. I left. And I went to Larry's Oasis. And I had me a few buds. And I got oiled up, and when I get oiled up, I don't care where I got to go get a handout, I'll go. And now I've got it coming. You hear me? See, now I've worked it in my mind. I've got it coming. They said I got what I had coming. I got down there about 8 o'clock that night. Isn't that interesting? Now I'm going in. I don't care if the light's on or gone. I'm going in. And I went charging through that basement doorway, failing to notice that the door header's 510-ish. <laughs> I'm 6'3-ish. And I went in like a bull in a china shop, and I hit that doorway right across the eyebrow. And the impact lifted me right off of my feet, and I slid into my first meet with Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> now, inside this room was six or seven old men who must have been talking about death and dying. I slid right between two of them. And this old crusty one gets up out of his chair and looks down at me and goes just like this. <laughs> and then he growled at me. You know how they are. He goes, slide right in here, dummy. We got an arrest to fit every nut that comes in the door. I didn't like him right away. 
So I'm reaching for that gun I got tucked away in my boot. And then he says, Dummy? And I looked up at him on the floor and I said, My name's Wayne. He says, I got it. Dummy? <laughs> you know how they can be. He says, I'm going to be your sponsor. <laughs> that saved his life. <laughs> now you might wonder why since I've never been to A before. I played baseball in the Tavern League. Our team always had a sponsor. I bowled in the Tavern League. We always had a sponsor. And our sponsors paid for everything. Psychiatrists call that a loose association. And I got up off that floor and promptly stuck my head right up Barney's butt. They say Barney should have put turd signals on his hips to keep from breaking my neck. I was so close. <laughs> and for the next five years, I went to meetings every day. And I drank every day. I'm one who found it necessary to drink after I met you. You people made me thirsty. <laughs> I drank before every meeting I went to. I drank after every meeting I went to. And when I could no longer stand your hugs and your phony love, I love you. How can you? You don't even know me. And I would go drink. When I couldn't stand that no more, I would drink during the meeting when I could smuggle my quart bottle into the bathroom and hide it in the trash can. By the way, if you ever find a gathering like this, where a drinking drunk's not allowed to sit in quietly and listen, it's no longer AA. It's a gathering of people forgot where they came from, in my opinion. But in case you're having a little slippy poo, I do want to caution you. While you are welcome, we want you to behave while you're here. And therein lies my problem, specifically. <laughs> I can either drink or behave, I just can't do it simultaneously. <laughs> I came into my whole group one night, late, of course, disrupting the speaker, of course disregarding anybody sitting near me, don't care. I don't know nothing about nothing. It's just all about me. I come walking in, disrupted the meeting, and an old-timer got him and says, you got to quiet down, you're disrupting this meeting. And I looked at him, and I'd been spiritual when I came in. Because <laughs> I had some Budweiser's on board. And I was happy to be here until he got up and got in my face. And he says, you got to quiet down. And I looked at him, and I said, I don't want to. Another one got up and says, you got to sit down, you're disrupting this meeting. And I said, I don't want, I don't have to. Another little boy gets up and says, you got to leave. Now, you're welcome to come back tomorrow when you can act accordingly, but we have a right to an undisturbed, undistracted message of hope for the newcomer because the newcomer is so easily distracted they may miss what they need to hear because of you. And besides that, some of us older people are interested in the message too. So you have to leave, but you can come back tomorrow. We don't kick nobody out of AA, no matter how deviant they might be. I looked at him and I said, you can't make me. Oh, yes, they can. <laughs> you said, oh, boy, right there? Yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> About four guys his size. I don't know where they found them that night. <laughs> they must have went to detox. <laughs> but about four guys his size, each one grabbed an arm and a leg. They talked some newcomer into holding the door open. <laughs> I noticed as I flew by. Just I landed out in the middle of 16th Street, I heard my sponsor yell out, Keep coming back! 
I hated his guts. <laughs> Four and a half years drinking, I walked into meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I heard my sponsor yell out, Hey, dummy! And I'd become responsive by now. I said, What? He said, do you know this program works better if you don't drink? <laughs> Marty, I didn't know that. Nobody told me, you know what, I can take a polygraph test and pass it. I've been sitting in meetings every day for four and a half years. And not one time did I hear anybody say anything about not drinking. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> but for some reason I heard it in that instant and I, I did the only, I, I reacted. Because now I know today that he, that I felt he was going to take away the only thing that was working for me. And I did the only thing a madman could do. I reached down in that cowboy boot and I pulled that 357 out. I turned around, aimed it at my sponsor's face and fired a round off. And I missed it. I missed. <laughs> Don't judge me yet. I'm not done. I missed him six inches high. They say if Barney would have been six foot tall, he'd be six foot under. <laughs> I came through the next morning at Franciscan Mental Health Center in Rock Island, Illinois. It was my 17th trip to the psych ward. I was strapped down in six-point leather restraints to a steel bed about four inches off the floor in a padded room, black and blue from head to toe from a little AA group therapy. <laughs> I asked my sponsor earlier about that group therapy, and he said they did it with love. <laughs> I had a visitor the next morning. You know who it was? Barney. I couldn't get rid of him for nothing. He was like a maggot on a mission. He come walking in there, and they got me strapped down. I got broken ribs. I mean, they'd done a good job on that therapy. I'm having a hard time breathing. And in walks Barney, and they confiscated my teeth. They was afraid I might bite through the straps or something. <laughs> and they sent a nurse in with Barney, and I'm naked. You know, they sent a nurse in to make sure I couldn't get at him. And he's down there, he's looking at me, and he starts snickering. You know how they are, you just can't get him. He goes like this, dummy? <laughs> There's something wrong with you. I don't even know if you're an alcoholic. You might just be nuts! And I'm thinking, yeah, you, you talk to me like that while I'm strapped down here, pal. But they got to let me out of here someday, and I know where you live. That's what I'm thinking. It's like he had ESPN. He says, you know what? They're talking about keeping you and studying you a while. And then you know what he said next? He says, but if and when they do let you out of here, if you come with us, and do what we did and still do, I believe you can recover too. That's the AA I'm in love with. That's AA. And then he went to the Board of Psychiatry and got me released into his custody. I said to Barney, I said, aren't you afraid of me? He says, I'm not afraid of you. I said, I am. <laughs> I said, how come you're not afraid of me? He says, it's in the book. That's when I started hearing about the book. It's in the book. What's in the book? The reason I don't got to be afraid of you. Well, what's in the book? He said, it says that we do not need to fear to go to the most sordid spot on earth to carry this message that God will keep us unharmed and you, bucko, are the most sordid spot I've ever been. 
A lot of love. <laughs> November 8, 1977, I, I took what appears to be my last drink. I can't explain it to you. It's just it was. Uh, me and a guy that, well, let me tell you that story. I'm sitting on the front steps of my home group waiting for the noon meeting, drinking a six-pack of beer. I got there early, about 9.15. I got three empty cans on the ground, three in the lap, and guess who shows up early for the meeting? Barney. He's, he's like everywhere. And he's an old-timer. He didn't look at the beer. He looked me in the eye, making me do this. You know how they are. They just love to toy with us newcomers. And he says, why don't you come in and help me set up for the meeting? I looked at the beer. I said, I'll be in in a minute. And then after he went in, something compelled me to go in with him and help him set up for the meeting. But first I hid my three cans of beer in the bush. I might need him during the meeting. You never know who's going to share. <laughs> so I went in and helped him set up for the meeting, folks. It's that simple. And then Barney took off and started talking to another newcomer. There's a lot of newcomers at that group. And I'm sitting there, it's about quarter to twelve, thinking, thinking. And then walked another newcomer. We'll call him Jim. He announced himself as being sent there, didn't know why he was there. He was drunk. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I get this urge to be Barney-like. <laughs> Haven't you ever wanted to be like your sponsor? So I got up out of my chair and I went over to him and I put my hand in his hand. And I said, hi, I'm Wayne B. I'm an alcoholic. He says, I don't know what I am. And I said, that's okay, Jim. I'm going to be your sponsor. <laughs> now, I've only had three cans of beer. I've been around there eight, five years. I didn't classify myself necessarily as a newcomer. I've been a rounder. And so he said, what's a sponsor? And I went into a panic. I don't know. <laughs> so then I did what Barney did. I said, well, hmm, I don't got no money, but I'll buy you cigarettes, uh, get you food to eat, and when you need it, I'll give you some pocket dough. He said, okay. Now, Barney's within earshot. He was over there like, like that. And he held my life in his hands. He could have said, Dummy, you can't sponsor him. You've been drinking too. But he knew the other guy didn't know. <laughs> or he could have said, Dummy, you can't sponsor him. you got to be sober in a year. Or, Dummy, you can't sponsor him until you've worked all the steps. You know that outside crap that's creeping into AA. <laughs> Glad nobody told Bill Wilson that. Instead, he whispered in my ear, Dummy. Can I co-sponsor him? <laughs> I turned and looked at him and said, No! No! He's mine! <laughs> and I just had my ass for five years! It's my turn! <laughs> so he tricked me. He sponsored both of us. Of course, now... Jim and I are both sober 24 years, 8 months, and a few days. But I have him by 3 hours. <laughs> Barney says, if you two want to stay sober, grab 
Grab newcomers and work with them. That's all I can tell you. Grab newcomers. Grab them, grab them, grab them. And by Jesus, we did. Me and Jimmy went on a mission. We went to taverns. We went to saloons. And if your head was on the bar, you were going to a meeting. We cross-stepped everybody we saw. We even cross-stepped an Al-Anon once. Oh, Jack, we let him go quick. Oh, detach. We were, I swear to God, we were putting notches in our big book. Everyone we talked to, we notched it and took it to Barney for his approval. Look. And Barney say, oh, keep it up. Keep up the good work. Two weeks into this, Jimmy's got one more mark than me. Not that I noticed. But I made my mind up I was going to equal it out. And I told Jimmy, you stay in that chair, you move, I'm going to kill you. And I meant it. I wasn't, I told, I'll kill you and your family. Don't move. Now, that ain't brag. That's just how sick I was. So I'm sitting, because I'm getting the next nuke, and then it occurs to me I don't know what a newcomer looks like. Dick, what are you going to do? So I went and asked Barney, what's a newcomer look like? He says, I don't know. Can't tell them if you can't smell them. Look in their eyes. You can always tell by that look in their eye. I said, okay. So I sat back in my perch, and then he came in. He had that deer in the headlight look. That thousand yard, been thrown out of the freeway stare. I glanced Jimmy at don't you move look. And I shot out of my chair and Went up to him and had one hand in his hand to welcome him to AA, and then Barney's voice went off. Grab him, grab him, grab him! So I grabbed him by the throat. <laughs> and I pinned him up against the wall. And I said, Listen, asshole! If you want what I got, you gotta do what I did. I'm not proud of that. That's just my experience. <laughs> and this is what I heard. Let me go. So I'm working a program. Let go and let God. <laughs> and then he walked away trying to get his breath back. I said very flippantly, listen, pal, I'll be here when you get back. He had 11 years. <laughs> Look new to me. But he truly had 11 years because he let it pass. He gave me a pass. You know, he got, could have got up into my face, but he knew how new I was. He worked his program. He laughed it off. And you know, i, I got to tell you, it's been that way. Of course, I don't grab him like that no more. But I was the mind of a madman. Without alcohol, I've got the mind of a madman. If you give me a drink, I get relief. Without drink, I have no relief. And God, I'm so glad you let me come to your meetings in the shape I was in. Because I did get to get sober. Thanksgiving, 1977. My dad sober over four years. He heard I was sober three weeks in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he got word to me I could come home for Thanksgiving dinner. 
And I called my sponsor up and I said, Barney, what do I do? He says, go. What do I do when I get there? He says, eat. <laughs> okay. So I went and there was my dad, clear-eyed, sober, happy to see me. He hugged me, the mess that I was, and invited me in. My mom was cooking Thanksgiving dinner. She gave me a kiss and said, welcome home. My dad and I went in and sat on the couch and started watching the game. And a commercial came on for Miller Lite beer. It was new. Less calories. Less filling. My dad looked at me. I looked at him and he said, surely, Wayne, that can't hurt us. I said, surely not. And me and my dad got in the car and went and bought a 12-pack of Miller Lite and brought it home. My dad didn't have a sponsor. My dad didn't have a home group. My dad didn't have service in AA. I called my sponsor. I said, Dad, do you mind if I call my sponsor? He made me agree with him that I'd call him before I drank. He wanted to watch Stupid in Action or something. <laughs> and he said, okay, call your sponsor. I'm so glad he said that because I wanted my dad's approval now. And if he would have said, no, drink it first, I would have drank it probably. But instead, I called my sponsor, and he was just sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner with his family. They had just flown in from the East Coast and from Montana to have dinner with their dad. And I said, Barney, I don't know why you want me to call me, but my dad and I, I'm going to have a beer with my dad. He says, I'll be right now. <laughs> well, that's not, that's not approval. I didn't even know he knew where my mom and dad lived. Shortly, I said, Barney, I said, Dad, I, I can't, I think my, I think my sponsor's coming over. <laughs> and he did. He walked in like he owned the damn place. You know how they are. <laughs> greeted my mom, greeted my dad. Said, dummy, come on, get in the car, we're going for a ride. Now I know I'm going to get the lecture of demon rum. <laughs> Don't drink no matter what. You know that crap? Because I drink no matter what because I'm an alcoholic. Can't scare me. You can't give me antibiotics and keep me sober. By the way, a man died in my arms when I was a cop one night from antibiotics poisoning. See, they don't understand when they give antibiotics to... They don't understand alcoholism if they give you antibiotics. They don't understand. Because antibiotics can't stop an alcoholic mind. But he held my life in his hands. And, and I thought I'm going to get this lecture of demon run. And instead, you know what Barney did for an hour as we drove around? He talked about himself. And I was okay with that for about 20 minutes. <laughs> now I want the lecture. But all he talks about is how much he loves AA. He talks about how much AA has allowed him to work for everything he's got and given him the freedom to come and go and do and be as he pleases. And then he lied to me. He says, I'm even glad AA put you in my life. I knew they had to do that. It was in the sponsor handbook. <laughs> and then he dropped me off at my dad's house. And he says, I'll pick you up tomorrow morning. We're going to go get you some clothes. We're going to go to a convention. And I didn't drink. And my dad died from chronic, untreated alcoholism because he thought he could drink Miller beer safely. And I want to tell you that's one of the most important words in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That one word, safely. Isn't that a precious word? Silkworth says that I can't drink alcohol in any form at all, in any amount at all, safely. I remember when it came out with O'Doul's. It's made by Anheuser-Busch. I called Barney up and said, Barney! You seen that old dude? It's non-alcoholic beer. He says, yeah, it's made for non-alcoholics, dummy. 
hated him. He's, and then he returned me to the doctor's opinion. He says, we can't drink safely. Safely. Can we drink? Yes. Can I drink O'Doul's? Yes. Can I drink Miller Lite? Yes. But I can't drink it safely because I have this interesting allergy in my body that denies me any power. And it couples itself with an obsession in my mind once I take that first drink. The effect produced that I'm going to make it manageable this time. And I'm so glad I know that. I didn't drink that day. And my dad died because he thought he could drink Miller Lite safely. And my sponsor picked me up and took me to, he's going to take me to a convention of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what that is. I've been sober three weeks for God's sake. Well, it's where a bunch of us get together and do this. Twelve hundred alcoholics in Rock Island, Illinois. And Polly, you're going to know every one of the speakers. But first Barney took me to his favorite department store to get me ready. He said, Dummy AA's a program of attraction, and you are a distraction. <laughs> he took me to the Salvation Army. And the only suit they had that would fit me was his lime green double knit polyester. <laughs> it had bright yellow lining with dark green tennis rackets. <laughs> so we bought it. Took me to the shirt department and I picked out this really cool shirt. It, it was like brushed polyester. Had collars like down to here. I guess it was a disco shirt. It only had two buttons, one here and there. But it had animals all around it. I thought it was cool. Looked really funky with a top. We bought it. Then we went to the shoe department. We're the only 13-inch gunboats they had in supply. Any disco people here? Come on. Get your hand up, Otto. I know you are. You remember those black and brown box-toe Oxford disco shoes with a two-and-a-half-inch platform sole and a four-inch heel? That's all they had. So we bought them. We got out of there for a buck eighty-five. He took me to that convention, stood me at the front door, and made me a greeter. <laughs> the speakers that weekend was a guy by the name of Chuck C. He had his wife also with him. And as a side note, this was the weekend that his son Richard flew in from Europe and met with him at this conference to reconcile past differences. And I got to sit at that table and watch it take place and had no idea what I was in the throes of. Another guy by the name of Norm Alpey got arrested. Dottie Shore, Clancy I, Johnny H, Tom B. Jr. Boy, was I loaded with dynamite or what. I had no idea who these future influences of AA on me were. All I know is Chuck C. came by and he took one look at my outfit. <laughs> and he goes just like this. I'd have shot him if I'd have had a gun. I'd have committed blasphemy. And then he whisked Elsa right by me. And then Johnny H. I heard, he, I heard about him before he got there. He'd been in prison most of his life. And he was from California. <laughs> He comes up to me and says, I heard about you. I'm thinking, I heard about you too, bucko. And I'm trying to give you my best lime green suit stare. 
and he says, bend over, I'm patting you down. I never took my eyes off of him for a minute. <laughs> then Clancy I came by and chuckled and, and uh, Dottie kissed me on the head and walked on by. And then Tom B. And then they were all laughing. I couldn't take it anymore. I looked at Barney and said, Damn it, Barney, are they laughing at me? He took one look in my eye and he said, Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. You are upside to the hole. He says, You know what, dummy? I said, but, says, if you ever learn to laugh at yourself, you'll never be left unamused. <laughs> I hated his guts. <laughs> then he made me cut grass for service work. My first year, I cut grass. Three acres of grass. AA grass, he called it. Three acres of grass. He lived in a trailer. And I'm cutting three acres of grass. When I, with a push gas mower, when I come to find out it was three widows that Barney was cutting their grass because their husbands had passed on and he was taking care of them. And now he tricked me into cutting all that grass. <laughs> and just before I turned one, he said I was having trouble minding my business, so he invited me out to his trailer. Now I know when I'm going to the trailer, I'm going to the shed, and I don't like the shed. So Barney calls me out there, and he says, now I want you to go out to that shed. There's a hula hoop hanging on the side of the wall. Bring it out here. So I get, and there's these three nasty, ugly, they've been there since 1931, hula hoops. I grabbed one down, brought us out, and by the way, I noticed on the way out that there was something underneath the tarp. I filed that away for later use. I come out and said, now throw that hula hoop on the ground. My pleasure. I said, now get in it. Now I know he's lost it. I'm in a trailer park, Jerry Springerville. So I stepped in that hula hoop, and he said, now, turn around and look everywhere. I think, oh, he's lost it, but I'm doing it. I told him I'd do anything. Turn around and look at everything. He says, now, you see all that out there? I said, yes, sir. He says, ain't none of your damn business. <laughs> he said, you see all that inside that hula hoop? I said, yes, sir. He said, that is all. That is your business. Now, go hang the hula hoop up. So I went and hung the hula hoop up, and on the way out, I had a little slip. I noticed the tarp. I uh, wonder what's under the tarp. So I peeked under the tarp, and you know what was under there? A perfectly good John Deere riding lawnmower. <laughs> I yelled out, Barney! He said, what? What is this? He said, what's it look like? I said, it looks like a riding lawnmower. He said, by God, you're right. <laughs> There's hope for you. I said, well, you're making me cut grass with a push mower. Why can't I ride your ride lawnmower? He said, dummy, you ain't got a driver's license. <laughs> when you go to the state of Illinois and get your driver's license back, I'll let you ride my ride lawnmower. Now, go cut the grass. I hated his guts. <laughs> and I found all the right people around the meetings that would tell me that he couldn't do that. That he had, you know, all the people, the, the naysayers, the, that tell you don't listen to your sponsor, that sponsors are not God, all that nasty nonsense that kills people like me. Thank God that I was in the AA I was in where they believed God was running all the show, the whole deal. Even when I was cutting that grass, Barney knew who I was working for, didn't he? You know, I didn't drink when I was cutting that grass, that water. And you know, I got to stay sober. I'm still sober. It's amazing. 
By working the power of 12 suggested steps in my life, unbelievable things have come to pass in my life. I'm not a big or I didn't go to college. I have no interest in college. I didn't go to college. I haven't shot, ate, fired no shot, heard around the world. You know what my greatest success is? Is I no longer have racing thoughts. I'm no longer a threat to society. I'm no longer a threat to women. I'm self-supporting through my own contributions. That's my achievement. I work with a lot of alcoholics. I don't say no to AA. I do what I'm asked because I have an obligation, a debt to pay. And so that's my victory in AA. That's my achievement. I get to come here and be with you people. Number one, because I think God picks the speakers. He just uses people to do it. That takes my ego out of it. God picks the speakers. He picks the coffee makers. He picks the secretaries, the chairmen, the greeters. He picks them all. We just think it's people. I believe that. I hope I'm not wrong. And what happens is here I am, 24 years, 8 months, and a few days, sober. And sometimes it's bewildering to me to see my life as it is. Through the ashes of Alcoholics Anonymous, having a home group, having a sponsor. And by the way, I'm not leaving God out. I hope you hear that. You see, God is in the mix. Remember when my sponsor asked me to do the third step prayer? You know how he had me do it? He said, take the word God out, put AA in. AA I offer myself to thee. To build with the... You hear me? That worked for me. I gave myself up to AA. And you never hurt me. You took care of me. You allowed me to become self-supported. You allowed me to become a different human being. I grew up here. I had the emotions of a child when I got here. It was like AA daycare. <laughs> and you know what my dream was? I wanted to be a cop. But I knew I couldn't be a cop. It was the most heartbreaking knowledge of my mind at nine years sober to know I couldn't be a cop, and that's what I always wanted to be. And my sponsor says, we got to try. I said, Barney, I can't be a cop. How do you become a cop when you've been arrested nine times for domestic violence, twice for attempted murder, and you've been psychiatrically institutionalized 17 times? How do you become a cop? You moved to Iowa. <laughs> I'm not going to take the time to tell you all that, but my sponsor told me to put the truth on my application. And I went around to all the people I could find that would tell me that's crazy. I did. I lined them up. They said, oh, don't listen to him. He's a, he don't know me. Just go, go lie or you'll never get the job. So I went when I thought I had enough people to gang up against Barney. I said, Barney, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person doesn't think I should tell the truth on my application. He said, fine. They can sponsor you. I don't mind. <laughs> I wrote real low when I got to the domestic violence. <laughs> you know, but I had gotten my record expunged because my sponsor got me to do that in my first seven years sober. So that I could be a citizen, not so I could become a cop. And you know, they called me in for an interview. I couldn't believe it. I got called in. I got given a psychiatric test. Go figure. <laughs> I had over 100 letters of reference from sober members of AA that had position in the community. And I got called in for the psych exam. I got called in for an oral interview. Got called in for the physical. Ended up going to the academy. Can you believe that? 60, 16 weeks later, I graduated fourth in my class. Not bad for a retarded guy, huh? <laughs> I called my sponsor up and I said, Barney, I made it. I'm going to graduate. And he says, I'm so proud of you. We both started crying. 
He says, I love you. And I didn't say, really? <laughs> he says, I'm so proud of you. And he says, I'll bring the group. <laughs> and then I said, Barney? He said, what? He said, they gave me my gun. He said, oh, shit. <laughs> and then here I am at my graduation, and he did. He brought the group, 45 of the most deviant-looking men and women you ever saw in your life. Half of them had outstanding warrants. But they came. I'm being sworn in. I got my hand on the other big book. And I look over to my right, and there's Wayne's World right there. And, I think, oh, God. and then as God would have it, they assigned me to drunk driving and domestic violence. And uh, I got to help out an awful lot of people. God used me. And I'm so glad that I was sober and put myself in a position to be of maximum service. Because we get used if we allow ourselves. And I loved chasing drunk drivers. I hate to tell you that, but I did. You resent a cop, don't take it out on me. I didn't arrest you. But I, it was a 12-step call all the way to jail. <laughs> I'd arrest you, and I'd talk to you. You were done listening before I was done talking. <laughs> I had this one old boy about your size. He was a lot like me. I had him shackled down really good. And his face is on the floor. And I'm talking to him all the way. We get about two minutes from jail, and I hear this voice from the floorboard. Will you shut up and lock me up? <laughs> I was his sponsor 12 years. <laughs> he just recently got a new sponsor in Des Moines. Isn't that interesting? And, and Amy and Martin's mothers have met some of the other people that I sponsored from Iowa that came through the judicial system where God used me to bring them into AA. Isn't it a miraculous what if we just surrender ourselves to the deal? God will use us, and then when he's done... We will be diverted into another direction and we'll be used over here. And I hope I continue to allow myself to be used because so many of us don't. So many of us get ours and refuse to give it back. So many of us get ours and leave and live with it and never pay back. No judgment. No, no judgment. I understand because it could happen to me. I could be floating along, and, I, and I'll share this with you. You know what my greatest enemy is right now? Is I wake up almost every day feeling normal. I feel normal. Isn't that a scary thought? I really do. I, I wake up and I look in the mirror and, and I don't see ugliness anymore. I don't see retardedness anymore. And that hasn't happened long ago that that began to take place. Alcoholics Anonymous is a powerful solution to the spiritual disease of alcoholism. And it's the only one known, isn't it? When you go to bed tonight, I want to commit you to think about something. The I am responsible statement. I am responsible. When anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. And when you go to bed, I want you to think about the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous is 67 years old. I know there's over, Clancy recently said there's over 7,000 years of recorded history. Can you think about that? How lucky you and I are. It's our lifetime. Our lifetime. 
You know, they used to bleed us. Did you know that? They used to bleed us to cure us. We never died from alcoholism. <laughs> died from loss of blood, but we didn't die. They have done so many bizarre things to try to fix us. And here, all it requires is following a simple set of principles that many of us balk at out of ignorance. And that's why sponsorship and home group is so incredibly important for me and you. Because when I die, I want to be one who ensures that this is here for my family. I've got five kids and 11 grandkids. I would bet that some of them are going to find their way here. <laughs> and I want it to be just this way. So if they're alcoholic, they can come here. If they're a drug addict, they can go to NAC or whatever A they belong in. If they develop a food allergy, hopefully they'll go to OA. But, but my concern is AA. We are not a 12-step program. We are a way of life. And I hope you will embrace this way of life. And as we embrace this way of life and live it 24 hours at a time, one day at a time, and pass that on to the still sick and suffering alcoholic, as we pass this on and embrace the way of life that we have here, all 36 principles, the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, the 12 concepts of world service, as we embrace those principles to the best of our human ability and pass that on and keep AA undiluted and straightforward, AA can last another 67 years one day at a time. And then one day maybe my son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter is going to be up here saying, my granddad was in AA and died sober. But more importantly, perhaps they'll say that, that my dad or my granddad or my great-granddad was one of those alcoholics that really cared about AA. God, I love AA so much. I hope it comes through. Thanks for letting me share.